So you'll see that verse 1 of our text today is something of a transition verse. Begins with the statement, when Jesus had spoken these words. What that's referring to is chapters 13 through 17, what's called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse in the gospel according to John. Jesus' last conversation with his disciples before he departs and he tells them in that conversation that he will be leaving to go to the Father but he won't be leaving them alone. He's going to give them the Holy Spirit to enable them to carry out the mission that he is giving to them and to live in a community that reflects the gospel. So our verse in chapter 18 begins by saying that the discourse is over. The dinner is done. The disciples stand up. And from this point on, the pacing in the Gospel of John picks up. It gets much faster. And it's almost like the narrative is just propelling forward, steamrolling forward to the crucifixion and to the death of Jesus. And it says the disciples rose and went to a certain place in the uh, writer of this gospel, the Apostle John, is going to give us some details about this place that are important. So in verses 1 to 3, we have the place described in your outline. The place described. You could also call this section, the stage is set. But that would screw up my alliteration. So it's the place described. <clears throat> Verse 1 again, it says, Jesus went out with his disciples across the brook Cadron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Jesus and his disciples had been in the heart of Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal, as every Jewish male at that time would have been. They would have all come into Jerusalem, but after the meal is done, the disciples rise and they actually walk out of the city walls. They're still in the region of Jerusalem, but they walk out of the city walls and they go into a valley, the, the valley Kedron. And it was that valley in 2 Samuel 15 that King David also crossed, leaving Jerusalem when he had been betrayed by his own son, Absalom, and his close advisor, Ahithophel. And in that valley that was to the east of Jerusalem, there was something like a brook or a stream that ran. Really what it was, it was an arroyo. It was a, a drainage channel for the snow to run off of the mountains. And so it would be full in the springtime. But that, that brook, the brook Kajron, was also connected to a drainage system that ran from underneath the temple itself. And so when the priests would offer a sacrifice, the blood that they would run out onto the altar would actually run down into this brook Cadron. So it is highly likely that as Jesus and the disciples crossed over this brook that John mentions, it would have been running red with the blood of literally tens of thousands of lambs that had been sacrificed for the Passover. Isn't that amazing? Just a dramatic visual reminder that Jesus will in just a few hours pour out his own blood as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 29. So the disciples crossed this valley, and on the other side of that valley there rose the Mount of Olives, and the disciples entered a garden there that is named in some of the other gospel accounts the Garden of Gethsemane which means the olive press. So this garden was probably more like an olive orchard that maybe had walls around it. Maybe it was owned by some friends of Jesus because it says that Jesus and his disciples would meet there often. And it's 
No insignificant detail, I think, that John highlights that this moment happens in a garden. Why would that be important? I think it's meant to recall another garden in the Bible. All the way at the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, the Garden of Eden. You remember the story that God creates man in his own image, Adam and Eve, and he places them in a garden, in a, in a paradise, where they have every need perfectly satisfied, every, uh, every desire that they could ever want completely met. They have perfect fellowship with God and with one another and with the creation. And it was in that garden that Adam the father of all mankind, made a tragic choice. This is in that garden where man was supposed to live in perfect obedience to God that Adam instead listened to the voice of the serpent, to the voice of the tempter of Satan. And Adam said, God, not your will be done, but my will be done. And Adam chose to reach out his hand and take from the one tree in the garden that was forbidden to him by God. He broke the one commandment that God had given to man. And in, in that moment, the Bible teaches, the whole creation was broken. Adam's fellowship with God was broken. Adam's fellowship with his wife was broken. Adam's fellowship with the creation was broken. It says that Adam is cursed and he is cast out of the garden and he is cut off from the tree of life. And so from that moment on, death reigned over Adam and over every descendant of Adam. And so the Bible teaches that all of us who are children of Adam, each of us, is born in that same broken condition that Adam was, that as Adam broke the commandments, so our hearts are bent on breaking God's commandments, that we are rebels just like our first father was, and each of our hearts in its natural state says, God, not your will be done, but my will be done. That was what we called the original sin, and it permeates through the whole creation, but it was also in that garden, in the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter three, that we get the first glimpse of God's plan to fix what is broken. In Genesis chapter three, when God is cursing everyone involved in this terrible choice, God says to the serpents in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Biblical scholars call that verse the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. The first time God promises that, that there will be Someone born, a descendant of Adam and Eve, who will crush the serpent. It will come at the cost of bruising his own heel, but he will fix what Adam broke. And in this garden, in our text in John chapter 18, 
we see that prophecy fulfilled. Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is not a garden of pleasure. It's not a paradise. We know from the other gospel accounts that when Jesus is in this garden, he is in agony because he knows what is coming for him, the brutal death that he is about to die. He he prays in that garden, God, if it's possible, take this cup away from me. But what does he say? Yet, not my will, but your will be done. It is in this garden, in the garden of Gethsemane, that the better Adam, Jesus Christ, will succeed where the first Adam failed, where he will perfectly obey God's commands and he will save the world. This is what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, as one trespass, that is the sin of Adam, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, Christ's righteousness, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So you have to have this in your mind, this big picture of the gospel, of the whole story of the Bible, to understand what it is that Jesus is really doing in this moment. Jesus is fixing what Adam broke so that he can save his friends and so that he can save all of us who would believe in him. And this makes, the rest of this passage makes sense. Otherwise, we would ask, why didn't Jesus hide? Look at verse two. It says, now Judas, who betrayed Jesus, also knew the place, the garden, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So this is one, just a, another reminder to us of the, the depth of the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. He was a disciple of Jesus. He had been in Jesus' close inner ring of friends for most of Jesus' public ministry. He knew the place because he had been there often, and yet he betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. But this also points to us that Jesus didn't change his routine. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Judas was coming for him. And instead of going somewhere secret, instead of going somewhere where he could hide, he goes right where Judas knows to find him. Jesus wants Judas to find him. Verse three, so Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Now, when you picture this group of soldiers, you need to picture a big group. When Matthew describes it, he calls it a great crowd. And John uses a technical term when he calls it a band of soldiers. It's literally a a Roman cohort, okay, which many people think could have been as many as 200 soldiers. Some say even more close to 600 soldiers. A full tenth of a legion is what a cohort means. But this is a big group coming at night with their torches and their weapons drawn. And so we ask, why so many to arrest Jesus? Well, it's probably because they didn't know who all was going to be there. 
Okay, remember, this is the Passover festival. There are huge crowds drawn into Jerusalem, and we have seen throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus can draw a crowd, can he? What if one of these crowds is there when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus? There could be a revolt. This could turn into a scene. And so the Romans come with a large group, but, but really it shows that they assume that Jesus and his disciples would think and respond the same way that they would. They think that Jesus is operating according to the world's definition of power, which is this. Anyone that has power wants to keep power. And if your power is threatened, if your freedom is threatened, what do you do? You fight. You fight back. So these Romans, these soldiers, Judas, and these other temple guards, they expect that Jesus and his disciples will act the same way that they would and fight. So they bring an overwhelming force. But there's something else that's really interesting about this description of the soldiers because you see that it is a cohort, but it also says that Judas had procured officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees. So these were probably something like policemen or guards that came from the Sanhedrin, from the the Jewish court. And so why is that interesting? Well, here's some Roman soldiers and here's some Jewish soldiers. And normally these are enemies, But here they're united together against who? Against Jesus. And in the Jewish mind, there are only two kind of people in the world. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. And so in this description of this mixed group, what I think John is saying is this is the whole world aligned against Jesus. And that's a picture of our fallen state in Adam. The Apostle Paul describes every person in their own flesh and their natural state as a descendant of Adam as being at enmity with God. It means that they're an enemy of God. They are rebelling against God even now. And so when you read this story, I don't know if you do this, you try to picture yourself in the story and you're not quite sure where to put yourself. In this one, you're one of the soldiers. In your natural state, you are one of those whose heart hates God and his commandments and wants to conquer God, wants to defeat God. So the stage is set. Jesus and his disciples are in the garden. The soldiers have come with their torches and their weapons. And then we get in verses four to six, the power displayed. The power displayed. Verse four says, then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. Don't miss that, okay? This has been reiterated again and again in the Gospel of John. Jesus knows everything that's about to happen. He's been calling it for years. He knows that he's going to be arrested. He knows that he's going to be lifted up. This is the hour prepared beforehand by the Father. Jesus knows, and so what does he do? Verse four, he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am. If you've been going with us through this study, you know exactly what to expect here because most translations will say, I am he. And that's right, it's a perfectly fine English translation. The Greek is a little ambiguous. But if you've got a good translation of the Bible, that he is probably in italics, or there might be a little footnote that says it could also just read, I am, because that 
is what Jesus is really trying to say. What would it mean when Jesus stands up and he says, I am? Well, this is what we've been looking at in these statements. That is a reference to God's divine name, his own self-disclosure, all the way back in Exodus chapter 3 and in places like Isaiah where God says, my name, I am. And Jesus stands up and owns that same title. They're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And what happens? Verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am. They drew back and fell to the ground. There'll be any question about what's going on here. I, you know, imagine when Jesus stands up and shouts, I am, that there's something like an invisible shockwave that just shoots out from Jesus. And all these guys fall down. They fall down onto their knees. It's just this moment of Jesus pulling back the veil a little bit on who he is. This is omnipotence. This is the infinite power of the second person of the Trinity. Now, I wonder what these soldiers are thinking. Because this is not voluntary. They are, they are knocked down. This is not, I think, like Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah sees with his eyes the Lord high and lifted up. And he says, woe to me, I'm undone. And he falls down because he has seen the living God. I don't think that's what's going on here. Because these soldiers will stand back up and they will arrest Jesus. I don't think that they think he really is God. And I think that's just a picture of the the hardness and the blindness of the human heart that even in this situation, they get knocked down in this declaration of I am. And they say, he's saying I am he. We still need to arrest him. But nevertheless, they were knocked down. And I think this is a foretaste of what the Apostle Paul describes in Philippians chapter two. In the last day, at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Everyone. And every time will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day every single person will be knocked down on their knees. So we don't know what these soldiers are thinking. But we know what this moment is meant to signal to us, why John includes this detail that they were knocked down. We know that if Jesus wanted to, he could level these guys. I mean, Jesus could have just stood up and revealed the fringes, the very fringes of his glory, and these guys would have all melted like an Indiana Jones And Jesus could have grabbed his disciples and they could have gone off somewhere to hide. Or even more, we know that if if Jesus wanted to, he could have taken over the whole city. He could have kicked out every Roman soldier that was in there, reestablished the throne of David in Jerusalem. This is what the disciples expected of their Messiah, isn't it? A military conqueror, somebody that would overcome their enemies. We know that if Jesus wanted to, he could take over the whole world right Here, by force. But what would have happened if he had? That problem that began in the garden in Genesis 3 would not have been solved. Jesus may have sat on a throne over everybody, but he would have been alone. Jesus has much more to accomplish 
in this moment than preserving his own security or even achieving more power, even though we know he could have. Instead, he willingly lets himself be arrested so that he can accomplish a much greater plan, the plan of salvation. And I think it's worth stopping right here and meditating on this for just just a moment. I think we can apply this to ourselves. I think from this we can learn that even though you have power, it doesn't mean it's always right to use it. Let me give you an example. Usually, in a relationship, whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a family relationship, usually in a relationship, there's one person who is better at overpowering the other person. Maybe that's through raising your voice and being intimidating, or maybe that's through nagging and wearing down and manipulating. Okay, somebody in a relationship usually has more power and can overcome the other person so that they can secure what they want. They can secure their way or their comfort or their security, their sense of control. They exercise power over the other person. We can all be tempted to do this, to try and overcome someone else. But who would we be thinking about in that moment? Us. What do I want in this moment? What do I want out of this relationship? But is, is that what Jesus does? Does Jesus use the power he has to secure what is in his best interest? No. Jesus knows that he could overpower these people, but instead he uses his power to submit himself under these other people so that he can do what's best for them. I've been thinking a lot about these verses and I've been trying to apply them to myself and I've been thinking about verse four. It says that Jesus knows that all would happen to him. He knows what's coming, and he came forward. He stepped up. And I think that is the most truly powerful thing that any person can do. To know how things are going to play out. To know that if I give up control in this moment, I will be hurt. And yet, that is the best thing that I can do to secure the good of this other person. Jesus stepped up. I don't know if you've ever had this moment where you're having an argument, going back and forth with somebody, and then, and then it just comes into your mind. You realize, oh, they're right. Is it just me? Has anybody else had that? Okay, they don't know that you know, but you know that you know that they're right and you're wrong. What do you do in that moment? I think for many of us, it's an act of stepping up just to even be open to the idea that you could be wrong. (laughs) But that thought comes into your mind, I'm wrong. Do you try to justify that away? Well, they're, they're wrong too, or no, I'm not even. And you start to argue even harder, more forcefully, and just by, by virtue of your own power, your, your own rhetoric, your own logic, your own ability to overcome that person, you continue the argument and you win the argument. 
and you both walk away losers. Or that moment comes, you realize, oh, I'm, I'm wrong. And you step up. You come forward knowing what will happen. You stop them and you, and you say, look, I'm, I'm sorry. You're right. And I'm wrong. And you know that by ad- admitting that, you have given up control. You have given up the outcome of that situation. You know that you maybe have even opened yourself up to that person's anger, to that person's hurt. You have no control over how they respond to you anymore. You have opened yourself up to hurt, but you have stepped up. You have used what power you have not to overcome, but to come under that person, to use your power to seek reconciliation in that relationship. That's Christ-like power. And I, say, and I say power because I think it is. I think it's power that comes from a deeper knowledge. Me winning this fight is not what ultimately matters. Me not feeling the pain of being wrong, of being weak, of being hurt, that's not what ultimately matters. Eternal life, that's what matters. And, and I have that secured in Jesus. So no matter how this plays out, no matter how this conversation goes. I don't need to preserve control. I don't need to protect myself. I will live forever with Jesus, and so it's okay for me to be wrong. It's okay for me to be weak and to give up control because that's what Jesus does here. He has complete power, and yet he comes forward knowing that he is about to secure eternal life, not just for himself, but for his friends and for everyone who would believe in him. And it's not gonna come by conquering, by overpowering. It's going to come by voluntarily subjecting himself, letting them overpower him so that he can use his power to accomplish a much bigger plan. And that's what we see in Verses 7 to 11. We see that plan defended. So verses 7 to 11, the plan defended. These soldiers have been knocked down, and then in verse 7, Jesus uh, he gives them like a do-over. He asks them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And in verse 8, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So... If you seek me, let these men go. Undoubtedly, Jesus' disciples would have been arrested by this group too. They were associates with Jesus. And Jesus says, look, you want me, let them go free. Jesus uses his power to secure the freedom of his friends. And that's a little picture of the gospel right there, isn't it? This is kind of a summary of everything that's, that's happening. Jesus will give himself up so that his friends can go free. And then verse nine says that this fulfills the very word that he had spoken. It's an illustration of this deeper truth of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. It's a reference to something that Jesus said in chapter 17 in his prayer. So Jesus says to these soldiers, I'm the one you want, take me, let them go. And then we don't get details about exactly what plays out next. Do the soldiers step up right away? Do they rush at Jesus? Does somebody forcefully grab Jesus? All we know is here comes Peter. Verse 10. 
Then Simon Peter, having a sword, or really it's, it's like a small sword or a dagger. Peter has a sword, he draws it, and he strikes the high priest's servant and cuts off his right ear. This is a detail that is shared in every single gospel account of the arrest of Jesus. And every single time the action is condemned. Okay, far from being an admirable example of zeal for the Lord, this is just rebuked every time as foolish. Okay, this was not in obedience to Christ's commands. Christ never told his disciples to fight. And in fact, this was illegal. This was an act of violence against a lawful authority, and it was doomed to fail anyway. What's Peter going to do with a dagger against 200 soldiers? Okay, it was foolish. And there's even some irony in, in this moment of Peter stepping up and fighting these soldiers, because Peter is so brave right here with his little knife to take on this soldier, but in just a few hours, he's going to be scared of a little servant girl that asks him if he's one of Jesus' disciples. Three times in mere hours, Peter, who was willing to die for his Lord, won't even admit that he's a disciple. He denies Jesus three times. But there is a much bigger problem with Peter's action here. Because what Peter does in this moment is actually a threat to God's plan. Okay, this was, this was totally at odds against God's plan to save and fix the problem that began in the Garden of Eden. Okay, just think about it. What if Peter had actually succeeded? What if Peter had Rambo style with his knife taken out all of these Roman soldiers and they had gotten away? What if Peter had kept Jesus from dying on the cross? We think Peter's a fool for cutting off Malchus's ear. What if there had been no sacrifice? No Passover lamb, no forgiveness of sins, no eternal life. Way to go, Peter. And of course, Peter doesn't understand this. This is a mystery. The gospel is so counterintuitive. Peter, Peter could not comprehend a scenario where his Messiah, the one in whom he had put all of the hopes of his people, that, they would, that, that this Messiah would succeed by dying on a cross. This makes no sense to Peter, but this is the plan of God. Peter can only think like the world, that power must secure more power, and that is secured by fighting. Peter has no concept of laying down your life, but what does Jesus say? Verse 11, put your sword into its sheath. We're not fighting. This is not how we win. In Luke's account of the arrest of Jesus, he shares that it was actually in this moment that Jesus reaches out and heals this servant's ear. And did you see, it's kind of interesting that John mentions this servant by name. It says his name was Malchus. A lot of commentators think the reason John knows this man's name is that this man became a disciple. And there's, there's no way that we can know that for sure, but this is a powerful demonstration of, of Christ's heart. This is an enemy. This is someone that is coming against him, and yet Jesus is entirely concerned for his welfare. And I love how 
Matthew's gospel records what Jesus says in this moment, what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 26. Jesus says to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think, Peter, that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must be so. Peter, don't you know that I can defend myself if I wanted to? But that's not the plan, Peter. That is not how I save you. That is not how I save the world. You look back in our text in John 18, verse 11, Jesus says, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? If it hasn't, it should strike you that this this scene is a scary scene. It is a dramatic scene. It's at night. There are soldiers. There's armor clanking. There's torch lights. Okay, they've got their weapons drawn. There would be a lot of tension and anxiety. Neither side really knows what's happening. The music would be swelling. There would be a lot of anxiety in this moment. And then you just think about this, this scene the, the chaos that would have ensued after Jesus strikes this servant and cuts off his ear. There would have been shouting, there would have been grappling, there would have been pushing, there would have been blood. This is a scary scene. But of everything in this scene, there is nothing scarier than this cup in verse 11. The cup that the Father will give to Jesus. All throughout the Bible, in the Old and the New Testaments, the cup refers to the righteous wrath of God that is rightly poured out on sinners that are at enmity with God. It is unstoppable. It is terrifying. It is the holy indignation of a perfect and omnipotent God against all of those who have their entire lives said, not your will, God, but mine be done. All of those who since Adam have lived in rebellion against God. Look at this from Jeremiah 25. It says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all of the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Or this is from Isaiah 51. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. These two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine, and sword. Who will comfort you? And one more, this is Revelation 14, 10. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, 
poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. The apostle John will go on to describe this torment, this wrath of God, this cup of God as a smoke of torment that goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. So do you see that the cup is the scariest thing in this passage, the fearful wrath of God that every sinner deserves? We must drink the cup. And Jesus comes forward and he says, no, I will drink it. I will drink the cup. Peter, I must. This is the only way to save sinners. Someone has to drink the cup. It's either going to be them or it's going to be me, but I alone have the power to drink it on their behalf. I must drink the cup. And this is, this is the, what the cross is. This is why Jesus died on the cross. The cross was the means. It was the instrument of God giving the cup to Jesus. It was on the cross that Jesus died in the stead of ruined sinners. For, for anyone to die on the cross, okay? Thousands of people were crucified during the reign of the Roman Empire. For anyone to die on the cross would have been an excruciating experience, literally. That word excruciating comes from the word for cross, crucifix. I don't think in the history of mankind there has been a more evil torture method devised than the cross. And yet for Jesus, it was so much more than torture. It was literally hell. It was all those scary passages about the cup in one moment. The full-blown eternal wrath of God that every sinner deserved suffered fully and finally when Jesus was on that cross drinking every drop until in John chapter 19 verse 30 he says it is finished. And he bowed his head and he yielded up his spirit. And the apostle John describes in chapter 19, eyewitness details that prove Jesus really did die. They took a spear and they stuck it up into his side and out poured blood and water. He was very much dead, killed by the wrath of God. They took him off of the cross and they laid him in a tomb and this is why it is so important that Jesus be more than just a man this is why we believe and we confess that Jesus was the omnipotent son of God God himself because if he had just been a man even a man dying nobly on behalf of his friends, as great an example as that would have been, there would still be a cup for each of us. And the problem that began in Genesis 3 would not be solved. 
but the all-powerful Son of God himself. He alone could bear the full weight of sin, of every sin for every believer. How many, how many lives is that? How many people throughout history have put their faith in Jesus Christ? Millions, billions, Jesus died the death of every single one of them. He absorbed the wrath deserved for every single one of those people. It is unimaginable the amount of wrath that Christ took for himself. Every sin since Adam right there on that cross. And yet Jesus still had power left. The power that he could have used to stop those soldiers, the power that he could have used to secure a kingdom for himself, instead, he uses that power to conquer death, to conquer sin for us. And we know this is true. We know that the plan was fulfilled because we know that three days after he was crucified, Jesus came back from the dead. He escaped from the grave. And that proves that the cup has been drunk in full, down to the dregs, every last drop. Any wrath that God would have for you has been completely absorbed by Jesus. And he is the resurrection and the life. John chapter 20, the apostle John, again, eyewitness details, records that these disciples saw the Lord risen from the dead. They put their hands in the holes in his hands. They touched the hole in his side. He was raised from the dead and is alive even now. He was and is the Passover lamb who was slain and who was raised. And so in John chapter 20, Jesus gives his power to the disciples. And he says, go out. I'm sending you as the Father sent me. Go out and proclaim this same gospel, the good news that your sins can be forgiven by faith in Jesus Christ who willingly submitted himself to be conquered so that his friends can go free. Go proclaim that gospel. Go live that gospel. And at the very end of John chapter 20, John writes this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, this is, this is the whole reason I wrote this book. This is the whole reason I'm giving these eyewitness details about the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus said so that you would know the power of Christ, that he is the son of God and that he died for you and that if you believe in him, you will have eternal life. Even though you die, yet you will live because he is the lamb who was slain. This is the whole reason that we've been preaching this series and looking at this book is to proclaim Christ as the Son of God so that you may believe. So I ask you, have you believed in Jesus? Have you believed that Jesus is the Son of God? Because there is a cup 
there is a cup of God's wrath. You have sinned against your creator. And he is patient, but his patience will not last forever. He will make you drink that cup, and you cannot even imagine what that would be like. But Jesus, Jesus will take that cup from you if you will let him, if you will believe in his power, if you will step up and admit, I've been wrong, I am wrong, and I am at enmity with God, and I want peace through Jesus Christ. Let Jesus drink the cup for you. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God, and you will have eternal life. And for the rest of us, for the rest of us that that have believed in Jesus, be reminded of what you deserved that Christ took on your behalf and say, praise God. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you for the lamb. Thank you for the perfect sacrifice. What wondrous love is this? And hope as we wait that Jesus has accomplished the plan and one day it will be completely accomplished that we will go back to the garden. We will have what was meant to be Adam's We will be in perfect fellowship with God in a new heavens and a new earth that the Apostle John describes in the closing chapters of the book of Revelation and it is filled with allusions to the Garden of Eden. Here is the tree of life. Here is our fellowship with God and with one another and a restored creation. Here is our perfect peace secured by the Lamb who was slain. Hope in that day when we return to the garden. And until then, may we follow in Christ's example and be willing to step up, even if it means that we will be hurt. Would we be the kind of people that use the hope that we have, the power that we have to seek the good of others and in so doing testify to this gospel of the Son of God who did not hold on to his life but gave it up that we might live. Amen. Let's pray. God, this is overwhelming, this hope that we have. And I, Lord, I pray that you would help us all to, to apprehend anew the wrath that we deserved, that you spared us from, that you gave your son to be a substitute for God, would you please, if there's anyone in here that has not even been gripped with the the weight of their sin and and the magnitude of their rebellion against you, the wrath that they deserve, Lord, would you convict them now? And would you point them to Christ who drank the cup for us? And Lord, would you give us hope? Would you give us hope in the gospel? And would you help us to be a people that lives out the gospel, that steps up, for the good of others and the glory of your name, amen.